Welcome. Welcome to Talking Through the Numbers, a podcast produced by Wilder Research. Our goal is to provide insight on significant issues. We want to combine sound information with expert knowledge so that we can enrich our understanding of things that affect our communities and our world. I'm Paul Matesic, Executive Director of Wilder Research, and today our topic is children's mental health. Two experts have come to the studio for this conversation. Dr. Cheryl Holm Hansen is a senior research manager at Wilder Research. She has a doctorate in psychology and has led studies related to children's mental health for more than 20 years. Dr. Mark Sander is a senior clinical psychologist for Hennepin County and director of school mental health for Hennepin County and Minneapolis Public Schools. He has worked in the field of children's mental health for over 20 years. So, thank you for joining us here at Talking Through the Numbers. To begin, how about some quick definitions to uh, lay the groundwork for the conversation? Our topic today is children's mental health. What do we mean by children's mental health? And uh, conversely, what do we mean by mental illness among children? Sure, uh, I'll, I'll start with that. So I think, you know, children's mental health in my mind is is a pretty broad category. I think oftentimes... Uh, people think of of mental health as as mental illness, uh, which I think is a, is a mistake. As mental illness is only kind of part of it. When we think about mental health, we need to think about uh, mental well being, uh, positive psychology. Uh, obviously, there are uh, issues that that come up just like with physical illness, um, and and that's when we think about uh, mental health issues, uh, mental health disorders, and uh, mental illness. Um, and, and again, that is just like with a physical illness, uh, there are really effective treatments that we have. Uh, it's really important to catch things early. Okay. So, so the labeling is important, you're saying. We should be thinking about mental health. We should think about well-being. There are disorders. There are illnesses. In any given year, if you want to focus on the, the illness to disorder part, in any given year, what proportion of children have a men- mental illness that should uh, be receiving care? for that illness? Whether they're getting it or not, what proportion have something that should get some attention or care? It's an interesting question because um, it's hard to tell. Sometimes there are not um, accurate ways of measuring for all people, but the common estimates are that um, in any given time, about 20% of all children would meet the criteria for a mental health uh, condition. Um, and that's that persists through adulthood, too, that it's really about 20%. Okay. And does that mean a condition that is going to be with them forever, or it's kind of like, you know, you break your arm and it eventually gets better, or we talking acute or chronic? Mm-hmm. or so? Um, it combines both. Um, the 20% is at that time uh, that many people would qualify as having a condition. And what we know is that mental health um, issues, some can be pretty persistent and be lifelong conditions that people have to manage. Others can be transient. It could be like another kind of medical illness where you have it and you are successfully treated and then it is not a lifetime. Okay. So roughly one in five, has this gone up or down or stayed the same? And are there any major differences? Are certain types of children more likely to fall into the category of having an illness or disorder or or what? Well, and I also look to Cheryl to kind of back me up with 
um, more data. But I, th- I think there's oftentimes a perception that at any given time, there's more mental illness uh, going on than in a previous decade. And I think, but oftentimes when we, when we look at the data, there hasn't been a significant increase in actual prevalence. I think it's more about the public's awareness and, and also the public's openness to have these conversations, so, which I think is a really good thing. I think talking about mental health and talking about mental illness is, is super important to break down that stigma because we also, in addition to the 20%, we also know that um, more than half of the adults with mental illness had symptoms before the age of 14. Okay, so that's important to understand in terms of lifelong consequences. What about differences? Are, are the poor children, rich children, children of color, white children, any differences you can see? Or, or are they all kind of even out at about 20%? Most of the research shows that that 20% rate is pretty consistent across populations. What we know is that there are differences in how many children are identified and treated for mental health issues. That can vary tremendously by background. Um, And within that 20%, there's a huge variety of conditions or challenges that we may be talking about. And there are some variations within that. Um, But the overall 20% seems to be pretty consistent. Which might surprise some people that there aren't social differences. This is probably an impossible question, but to the extent you can answer it, you know, what, what causes mental illness in children and, and how do, and we hear a lot about trauma, for example, how does that fit into the causation? Is there anything you can say about the, the causes of mental illness? Well, I think there's a variety of causes and I think there's, uh, certainly just like with physical illness, there can be, uh, people be predisposed to anxiety, depression because of, uh, genetic factors, heredity, different things kind of going on, you know, biologically. Uh, but then there's oftentimes uh, environmental component um, that, you know, maybe is a trigger um, and also just kind of developmentally. I mean, sometimes uh, developmentally there'll be challenges that happen in the course of normal development that'll trigger uh, a mental health condition. And then sometimes it can be uh, you know, purely kind of situational. So there, there's a lot of different factors that can kind of play into, uh, you know, the, the cause of a mental health okay. condition. So it could be genetics, environment, development, situational factors, variety of things that, that could, could come in. You mentioned earlier uh, treatment and talked about some children have an illness. Proportion of those are treated. About what proportion of the children who have a mental illness receive some kind of formal mental health service or treatment for that illness? The research on that is actually pretty consistent, um, that less than half for sure. And some studies say it's even lower than that. But the most promising studies still peg it at less than half of all children with an identified mental health condition receive formal treatment. So doing some quick math, 20% of children have a mental illness at any point in time. Half of those receive it. That means about 10% of our children have some type of illness or disorder and are not receiving treatment for it. Correct. And the studies also show that uh, children of color are half as likely as white children to receive services. Okay. So, I was so ask the numbers you about, yeah. drop pretty quickly. Okay. So cultural or racial groups, um, 
with them, it's even a lower proportion who are using formal services? Yes. Yep, absolutely. Okay. And why is it that the usage is different for these uh, cultural and racial groups? I, th I think there's a variety of factors. I think one of the things is is that uh, is stigma and kind of the uh, just, uh, you know, kind of the stigma around um, about mental illness and kind of being able to talk about it. And uh, is that based, do you have studies that have shown that or is that more, you know, just professional experience, clinicians reporting that about no, stigma I mean, I mean, I think there's a, there's communities themselves? Well, saying that to you or? Yeah, I think uh, all of those. I mean, I think a lot of those things. I think there's a number of studies showing, you know, the, the difference within engagement and kind of looking at uh, stigma as a big factor. But then also just hearing about in the communities, uh, you know, a lot of different communities for cultural reasons or spiritual reasons really uh, feel like uh, talking about mental illness is just really kind of taboo. Um, and then I think another piece is we don't have enough uh, clinicians of color uh, providing the services. So oftentimes, um, if you're not able to go kind of work with someone who looks like you, who knows your experience, there there becomes another barrier to enter into, uh, entering into treatment. Is anything in the field doing anything about that to get more clinicians of color or is it nothing happening in that regard? Well, I know? think, I mean, I think there is absolutely a lot of, of work around uh, recruitment of, of clinicians of color. I, I you know, the Minnesota Department of Human Services has had a grant program for a number of years that really focuses on helping uh, clinicians of color kind of move through the uh, process of getting trained and licensed, uh, providing them, uh, having community agencies provide them supervision and training opportunities to really move along in their professional career. There's a few other issues that contribute to that disparity that I think are important to mm -hmm. note. Um, the ones that Mark mentioned are very important, but there's a few others that come up as well. One is that the medical model that guides formal mental health treatment isn't always a good fit culturally. You know, there's a strong emphasis on, um, on medication and other things that don't always fit culturally. There's also at the societal level issues around how children are identified and how we interpret their behaviors. And one of the things that we know is that children of color who are exhibiting mental health issues, um, sometimes those challenges are seen as behavioral challenges. So we see some disproportionate uh, number of children who have mental health issues but are referred for school discipline issues or special education so you're saying or juvenile justice the, involvement. Right. The um, same behaviors are read, they're interpreted in a different way, and so they lead people down a different path of service? Correct, correct. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then we also know that there are challenges with accessing mental health treatment based on poverty, that uh, many of the services are uh, not fully covered by insurance. There may be children who are uninsured or underinsured um, who have ac access difficulties. And the times and places where services are available doesn't always fit. That if services are only available during business hours. Is that typical? Is it usually just nine to five, Monday through Friday? Or? Many of them are. I think the many agencies try to accommodate that with evening services or home-based services. But we know that the convenience of service times and locations is a barrier that prevents many children mm -hmm. from receiving services. So that's services. Uh, what about informal care? What about mutual assistance? What about community support? How does that all fit into the care and treatment of children who have a mental illness? 
So I think, you know, as Cheryl's talking about kind of the, the cultural factors that we need to be very aware of, I think this is a huge part of, of where, where mental health needs to grow, uh, quite frankly. I think that looking- Mental health care. Mental health care needs to grow um, is, is really around uh, acknowledging, you know, kind of cultural practices and, and the healing that can come from that. You know, there's, you know, drumming circles in the Native American community. There's, there's a lot of practices that have been around for thousands of years that really have deep meaning for, for a culture that can be extremely healing and therapeutic that uh, aren't uh, kind of given enough credence and and really are, are also not given enough funding. And so in terms of being able to deliver those types of treatment options, oftentimes there isn't funding because, of, as Cheryl mentioned, there's such a focus on the medical model. Mm-hmm. And and is this true of all cult? Is it true that all cultures have uh, informal ways of providing mutual assistance and support and so forth that are effective? Pretty much, they may be different, but they all have. Yes, uh, that's true. That. And the, how it looks may be different. But what we know is that, you know, these children are in community most of the time and treatment and prevention and treatment of mental health conditions happens in community. It's not a thing that you can just do once a week at your formal mental health program. So thinking about where are children the rest of the time, and Mark certainly could speak to some of the things that are happening in school settings, but thinking about where else are our children, you know, what are, what are we doing through informal programming that children may be involved in, you know, um, summer programs, recreational programs, faith communities, and in neighborhoods. Um, You know, children being surrounded by nurturing adults who are looking out for them, who are helping to teach social and emotional skills is a strong protective factor for kids. And we have a long way that we could go societally to be really thinking about how we build support around children in ways that maybe complement the formal mental health treatment, which is is a really aligned with a more limited set of needs. Yeah. So we have we have a long way to go to do that. What do we know right now about building positive climates for children so that we can promote good mental health? What do we know? We may have a long way to go, but what at least do we know? What base do we have to work on? Right. Well so we've got, you know, thirty plus years of research really showing that Positive relationships are extremely important uh, for uh, healthy uh, mental health development and social emotional development. And so I think that is something that everyone can do. Um, It is something that we're talking a lot about in schools. Uh, There's a big focus on evidence-based practices uh, related to how people teach math and science and reading. And that's fantastic, but I think in that conversation, oftentimes what gets lost is that having a positive, nurturing, caring, uh, welcoming relationship with a child is also an evidence-based practice that can be layered upon lots of other evidence-based teaching practices. So, So what does that mean? So I'm a dad, I'm a granddad, seven grandchildren. What does it mean for me to have a positive, nurturing relationship that would promote good mental health? Is that complicated? Does it take a lot of time or what? I, I, I don't think it takes a lot of time at all. I think it, 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 it's about being uh, predictable, uh, consistent, uh, nurturing, uh, and, and really engaging and, and really, uh, and it's also about having fun. And, and, and so just really being present 
with that child and and just really spending time with them. I think that uh, that consistency is one of the most important things is, is just they get comfortable with that and then are allowed to grow and develop. Okay. Um, so consistency, engagement, predictability, being present and and overall just having having a lot of fun. Right. Okay. And again, we're not talking here about just that being important for the 20% of kids who may be struggling with mental health issues, but that's a strong protective factor for all kids. For all. And thinking about how we teach children to relate to each other, how to have relationships, how to address their own feelings of fear or sadness or anxiety, which all children experience, um, how to um, handle conflict with each other in healthy and positive ways. Those things are good for all kids mm -hmm. across the board, and we can be doing a much better job of that. Okay. So Cheryl, uh, for several years, Wilder Research has conducted a statewide study looking at the capacity of our formal service system to meet uh, the needs of children and youth that have mental health conditions. Uh, if you're giving your elevator speech, what's the top one or two things we learned from that study? Yes, this is a study that we have conducted uh, with the Department of Human Services. It's a report or a project that is funded through the legislature to look at availability and accessibility of services. And what we know is that when we compare children with mental health conditions to other, other groups across the state, um, including adults with mental health conditions, children's and a, children and adult with physical disabilities, older adults, children with mental health conditions have fewer resources available to them. There are shortages in virtually every kind of service. Some in of all the, parts of the state? In all parts of the state. There are um, especially pronounced shortages in some of the rural communities. But we know that when we look at the spectrum of services from early intervention and prevention programs up through the programs for children who really have complex and significant mental health conditions, there aren't enough of any of those. And some of the services that come out as being particularly important are those services for kids who have complex, challenging conditions. We know we don't have enough psychiatry. We don't have enough residential treatment. We don't have enough inpatient okay. hospital beds. But so there's it, but a, lot the shortage of, a lot of shortages, and that probably earlier. contributes to that uh, half not receiving services that you mentioned. It does. Mentioned and before. one of the other things that comes out of that study that I find interesting is we interviewed uh, people who have received services or parents of children who have received services. And one of the questions we ask them is how easy or difficult it is for them to receive the services that they need to meet their needs. And we know that just about half of the parents rated um, that question is very difficult, that it's very difficult for them to receive the services that their children needs. And in comparison, when we know about the rising number of, of people who are older and the services that they need, it was 13% of older adults said it was very difficult for them to meet their needs. So there's a huge disparity even within that social service world in terms of the accessibility and availability of care for kids. Hmm. So let me ask a little bit different question about what we ought to do as we move forward. You're experts in the field. What would be one thing that you might recommend we get accomplished to improve children's mental health or to improve the care of children with a, a mental illness? I think one of the things that is most important is to think about how we are funding the children's mental health service system. There's a lot that we can be doing for all children in community, but within the formal 
mental health system. Um, we know some kids need more intensive treatment. They're going to need community-based treatment, but they also may need mental health uh, therapy. They may need residential care. They may need more intensive supports. And the trend right now is towards less funding for many of those services. There are um, challenges in getting those services fully funded by through insurance and some of the other funding streams are coming down right now as well. So we know that we need to preserve the funding and increase the funding so that the money aligns with those services that we know children need at all levels of that mental health they spectrum. They need and many of which we know are very effective. They are very effective when they are available to kids, yes. Yeah, Mark? So yeah, so I think for me, as I talked about earlier, you know, stigma is decreasing and, and that's a wonderful thing. I think what's now happening is more and more people are seeing all of these young people struggling with mental health concerns and they're feeling overwhelmed. And so I think uh, we need to be also continuing our efforts for early intervention. So I work a lot in school-based mental health and getting services into schools uh, is critically important because it really increases access uh, for students and families to get access to care, stay engaged in care, and really get care earlier because we know that treatment works. And if we intervene earlier, uh, the odds of treatment being successful uh, rise exponentially. So I think that's a big piece of... About, that has lifelong consequences. And, yep, to have, and, and so I think that is that balance. So we need to be working at both ends of the treatment continuum, really not uh, shying away from having kind of more intensive services for students that need that, but also uh, focusing earlier and really getting in and making uh, care a lot more accessible to families. And in Minnesota right now, there's a lot that's happening to try to build a more comprehensive network of services for children across, um, across that full array. And so it'll be fun and interesting to see what emerges out of that work in the next few years. Hmm. Okay. Well, we're going to need to wrap up, uh, but I have just a couple practical questions for you. So um, consider the typical person, a resident of any community in the Minnesota, the United States, if you had to uh, identify something they could do about the issues, the normal person, they don't have a lot of time, but maybe they're willing to do something. What's one practical step they could take? So for me, there's a, there's a couple of things. One is I think don't be scared. I think, you know, oftentimes, you know, people think about mental health conditions, mental illness, and they're like, oh, that's, that's somebody, you know, we need the doctor, we need the psychologist to, to work with this. It, again, it comes back to that idea of just those a caring, positive relationships are, are so impactful and, and just trying to help and, and trying uh, and, and giving hope is so, so important. So I think that is hugely important. And then I think the other thing is the, the mental health system and the children's mental health system is tremendously underfunded. Um, and, and we just really need uh, additional funding to be able to do, you know, the great work that can uh, be done. We know that treatment works. And so being able to deliver treatment earlier uh, to more students and, and families and children and families is really important. And then I think, lastly, uh, more funding for these uh, kind of cultural approaches to healing uh, mm -hmm. is, is really important. Well, you said two things, but you gave three things, and they were all pretty good. So, Cheryl. 
Yeah, those are those were good things, and those overlapped with my things. Um, but I think at the higher level, thinking about how you can advocate for children's mental health, you know, in the funding perspective, but thinking about conversations that we may be having with legislators, um, that's really important. And we know that locally and, and nationally, uh, more needs to be done to support children's mental health. And then think about ways that you can get involved with children in your own communities, um, or if you are working with children in settings that are not children's mental health settings, learning what's available, learning what uh, children need, finding ways to develop those relationships with children, and just being involved and present. Okay. So uh, one very quick final question. You know, I think that to be engaging, to be present with kids, and to have a lot of fun, ice cream is always a great idea. So, uh, Mark, what's your favorite ice cream, and will you get to eat it this summer? My favorite, Pavarotti at, um, from, uh, and I'm blanking on the name of the, uh, Ice cream shop. Yeah, so I love Pavarotti. It's uh, great, and I definitely will be eating some ice cream. All right, Cheryl. I tend to like the fruity kinds, strawberry, raspberry, things like that. Okay. And I will definitely eat some this summer. Okay. Well, I hope that we all get to eat our favorite ice cream and that, uh, that all children do as well. Thanks again to our guests, Mark Sander and Cheryl Holm Hansen. Please visit our website, www.wilderresearch.org, for more information on the topic. A lot of studies there you can uh, look at and also references, links to other sites with similar research and information. If you have suggestions for a future podcast, please let us know. I'm Paul Matesic from Wilder Research, and I look forward to talking through the numbers with you on other topics. <laughs>